Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Karen Tkach-Tusman, Senior Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, what the first clinical data for a PARP1 selective inhibitor and deeper profiles of ATR targeting agents suggest about the growing DNA damage repair fields next act. We'll also have takeaways from Steve Usden's exit interview with NCI director Ned Sharpless. We'll take a look at the McKinsey scandal and in our monthly emerging company spotlight, buy specifics for intracellular cancer targets at Zurich's CDR Life. ANSA debuts with $68 million in a Series A round for enzymatic DNA synthesis, and a new company from Versant that's looking to shield cell therapies with gene editing and more. But first, this episode of the BioCentury This Week podcast is brought to you by BioEquity Europe. BioCentury's 22nd BioEquity Europe conference returns to in-person networking for the first time in three years this May in Milan. Due to record demand, the organizers have introduced a waiting list for the remaining all-access passes to attend in person. If you want to attend in person, we encourage you to visit bioequityeurope.com to join the wait list and also review options for digital-only participation. Karen, there were a lot of DDR data at AACR this year. The AstraZeneca PARP1 selective inhibitor data in particular stood out. What's it all about? Well, this is something that uh, when I spoke with people last year, there was a lot of anticipation around this data because it represents an opportunity to keep and improve all the good things about PARP inhibitors while dialing down their hematotoxicity, which has been a major limiting factor for raising doses and also for uh, creating combinations. So there was efficacy data for this PARP1 targeting compound. And while that looked encouraging, the bigger thing that people were actually looking for was the safety data. On that front, it really delivered what people were hoping it would, just much lower rates of different types of hematotoxicity that had been seen with first-generation PARP inhibitors, and only 3% of patients required a dose reduction of AstraZeneca's PARP1 selective compound, which is an AZD5305, compared with between 25 and 50% of patients in trials of the first four marketed PARP inhibitors. So that is something that is really opening the door to what a lot of people see as the, um, the next act for DDR therapies, which is a more intensive approach to combinations. So Karen, really cool stuff there. I'm curious, what's the latest on the ATR space? People talked about it as the next PARP. How's that going? Well, it's not exactly the next PARP in the sense of the strength of the match between PARP inhibitors and BRCA mutations um, is an effect that hasn't been quite replicated in the ATR space yet. Part of it is around finding the right biomarkers to target the right patient populations. And part of it is around the opportunities for ATR inhibitors to make a bigger impact in combinations with other drugs. 
So on the biomarker front, there was a lot of excitement around ATM, uh, ATM mutations as being the biomarker that would correspond to uh, ATR inhibitors. But it's been kind of complicated because, well, one, the ATM gene is really big. There's lots of different mutations that can come up there, and not all of them correspond to uh, a lack of protein expression, for example. And so annotating what ATM mutations correspond to what effects on ATM protein expression and function is going to be important for the field going forward. And another interesting thing about ATM is that apparently it's often mutated as part of a chip clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, which is a natural part of the aging process and totally independent from what's going on in the solid tumor. So it's something where you have to be careful if you're looking for ATM mutations by uh, ctDNA in the blood, you might be misled into a false positive um, by a chip-related mutation that has nothing to do with the solid tumor. So that's something that the field is looking out for as well. And of course, as we'd been following before, the field remains on the lookout for biomarkers of replication stress, which is something that people think will have an impact across ATR inhibitors and other DDR agents as well, uh, in terms of identifying which patients are most likely to benefit. Excellent. Well, AACR has really been the gift that keeps on giving uh, this year, as you can tell from our pod. If you've missed um, previous episodes, we've dug deep on all manner of subjects coming out of the conference. And Karen's story is available online at biocentry.com. Let's turn now to Washington. Ned Sharpless has served as head of NCI since 2017, apart from a seven-month run in 2019 as acting FDA commissioner. What's his legacy been, Steve? You know, um, and Ned Sharpless, who, who I spoke with last week, and I'll have a story this week describing my conversation with him. He took over leadership of the NCI a few months after Congress lit the fuse on the first cancer moonshot, and he's been there long enough to help shape Moonshot 2.0. I'd say he, he didn't reach the moon, NCI didn't reach the moon, but he navigated the Institute through some very turbulent times, and he did it by refusing to take shortcuts. He resisted entreaties to plow most of its money into clinical trials, theoretically, that would advance what we already know, you know, and try to get things done much more quickly that way. And instead, he, he emphasized investment in fundamental investigator-initiated science. I think he'll be remembered for a few things, in addition to resisting pressure to pile bigger proportions of NCI's funding into clinical trials. One is an initiative to apply informatics to pediatric cancer research. And another is advancing inclusion and diversity, both at NCI and in the research that NCI funds. Excellent. And who is filling in for Sharpless? Have they named a, a new director or do we have a, an acting director for now? We have an acting director. Doug Lowy is going to step in after uh, Sharpless leaves on April 29th. This will be Lowy's, I think, third time in the position as acting NCI director. He's really a steady hand on the tiller and is highly regarded uh, in Washington and in the scientific community. Excellent. And so that story we're hoping to have out today on biocentry.com. Steve, last week you were working on the McKinsey story. Top line, what's at stake here? It's complicated. I'm not sure if I can say there's one top line 
there's the thing that people focused on that New York Times focused on. They got the documents before everybody else did. And they had a story that basically said Congress is accusing McKinsey of conflicts of interest, that it was working for FDA. And at the same time, it was working for clients that were developing opioids and it hadn't disclosed to FDA that it was doing that. The thing that I saw when I went through the documents, there were like a thousand pages of emails and texts from McKinsey that were, were released. The thing that really stuck out at me was not only the fact that McKinsey was working for opioids manufacturers and FDA at the same time, but the same individuals at McKinsey were working both for FDA and for opioid manufacturers. But another thing that really struck me was that McKinsey marketed itself to these opioid manufacturers based on its expertise at FDA. It told these companies, look, we can help you navigate the FDA process. We know about it because we work for the FDA. The other thing, though, that, that also struck me is it told drug companies, it said, we can help you because we have, quote, unique insights on your stakeholders. And when it said that, it pointed out that it has something called the McKinsey Hospital Institute, whose sole purpose is to serve the C-suite of a diverse set of U.S. hospitals, it said, with clients ranging from the top academic medical institutions to standalone community hospitals. It also has an institute on health reform, and it mentioned to these opioid manufacturers that it works for PBMs and insurance companies, which makes me wonder what companies that it works for think it's doing with their data or with the insights that it derives from their data. If it's telling drug companies, look, we're going to help you because we work also for hospitals and PBMs and for government, and we can apply the insights that we get from those clients to help you, then what is it telling those clients about the insights that it drives from drug companies? I, I think it certainly raises those kinds of questions. Well, what does McKinsey have to say about all this? So McKinsey declined to give me an interview. It put out a, a statement that's on its website saying that it's strengthened and scaled up its control functions, that it's tripled the size of its risk, legal, and compliance team since 2015. It's hired a new general counsel with government service experience, and that basically that it's being more careful about who it works for and what it works on. The other thing that I would say is that um, its top management has changed all of the things that were described in the in the House report and the documents that it released happened prior to July 2021, when Bob Sternfels was named global managing partner at McKinsey. What's next, Steve? Are there more shoes to drop here? I think that there certainly are. The House Oversight Committee is going to bring Bob Sternfels, the global managing partner at McKinsey, in to testify at a public hearing. That's what the committee has said. And um, they've requested information from McKinsey about its engagements with other pharmaceutical companies, companies other than the opioid manufacturers. McKinsey so far has declined to give the committee that data. If it does give the committee that data and if the committee makes it public, which it's done with much of the data that, um, that it got on the opioids manufacturers, I think that is going to um, raise a lot of eyebrows. It's going to be quite interesting. In addition, several members of Congress have called on HHS's Office of the Inspector General to investigate McKinsey. There are contracts that McKinsey had with CMS and also 
with HHS that were launched during the Trump years that might become fodder for, for future investigations. I, I think this clearly isn't over, and I think it's also going to, to lead to a, a broader look at the way that federal government agencies, including FDA and CMS and HHS, use consultants like uh, McKinsey and uh, Boston Consulting Group and, and other consultants. It's likely to lead to more calls for transparency around contracting with consultants and more scrutiny of the kind of activities that they undertake for the government. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. And again, Steve's story is up on our website. Definitely go take a look if you want a deep dive on what happened and what Congress is doing about it. And now for our Emerging Company Spotlight segment. Each week, we profile several emerging companies, often as they make their debut or raise significant financing. First up, Ansa. The company raised a North Pond-led 68 million Series A last week. Karen, what sets this company apart? So the enzymatic DNA synthesis space, which is um, where Ansa is playing, this is uh, a space we've been following for a bit. Right now, it's interesting. There's been a lot of revolution in terms of the speed and ease in which you can read DNA, but writing DNA overwhelmingly happens through a process that's been around for decades, um, a chemical synthesis-based process that uses harsh organic solvents and has limitations. The thought is that by using enzymes to make DNA the way nature does, you can get cleaner, longer strands for different applications, such as when you're making constructs for antibody therapies, for cell and gene therapies, and that the synthetic bio world in particular is using a lot of DNA as part of uh, their inputs. And so th this is the, the market that ANSA is looking to serve. And while there's a number of different enzymatic DNA synthesis companies out there, they're hoping to stand out through a process that doesn't use blocking groups to get their base-by-base -base specificity. So normally what happens, you've got the growing strand and you've got an enzyme there ready to add the next base. But to prevent it from adding bases you don't want and restrict it to adding just the bases you do, we've got some kind of blocking group there until you've got just the right conditions. But the thing about the blocking group is that it's not really a natural thing that the enzyme wants to do, and so it slows the process down. And ANSA thinks they can get around this by instead getting their specificity of which nucleotide gets added through um, by linking the right nucleotide to the enzyme itself. So they call their process fully enzymatic versus a, sort of a hybrid of enzyme and chemical. And it'll be interesting to see how that moves forward. And one thing actually that's in the DNA synthesis space is the decision around whether to go centralized or decentralized. So centralized is when you have people send you their sequences, you print it for them, send it back right away. Decentralized is when you give them printers for their own bench tops. And the challenge there is that it introduces more security risks, because what if someone decides to print Ebola? So um, there's actually even export controls that have come up around the software to check for pathogens in uh, desktop printers. And ANSA decided that rather than pursue that route with its security risks, they're opting for a centralized approach. 
Excellent. And the company is run by CEO Daniel Lynn Arlo, who began developing the technology while a graduate student in the lab of Jay Kiesling at Berkeley uh, and the company Bears. Go <laughs> Bay Area representing. And uh, the company is based in Emeryville. Next up, we are traveling to Switzerland, to Zurich. And we have a company that is backed by JTO, the French VC, RA Capital, and Omega, CDR Life. It aims to harness the high affinity of antibody fragments to develop a new class of bispecifics that can target intracellular cancer antigens. Karen, what, what do you have to say about their technology? Well, you know, one of the challenges around targeting intracellular antigens, so things that a tumor might be making its site of itself, but not displaying on its cell surface, is that um, the way those are presented, a cell surface target is just there on the cell surface, but an intracellular antigen gets chopped up in particular ways and displayed on what's called uh, HLA or MHC molecules on the surfaces of cells. And the interaction between an HLA molecule displaying a peptide and uh, the T cell receptors, which, um, which recognize that HLA peptide complex, that can be a challenging thing to replicate. It's not as easy as just an antibody going after a cell surface receptor. So CDR Life is looking to address this challenge uh, in a different way than people have in the past. In the past, people have just said, okay, I'm gonna take a TCR and have it do that binding work the way it would happen uh, normally. But here they have this antibody fragment library that can actually go ahead and bind with specificity the MHC peptide complexes. So that allows them to make bispecific engagers that would bring T cells to the tumors and recognize these tumor antigens from inside the cell on the MHC trays that are presenting them. So that'll be a really interesting technology to follow as, you know, of course, there's a lot of interest in deepening the activity of what bispecific engagers can do against what types of cancers. So we'll be looking forward to seeing that. Excellent. Uh, two to go. Versant's Simeo has debuted with 50 million to shield cell therapies with gene editing. The startup, which is based in Basel and Boston, is reaching for new cell therapy and transplant applications with a cell shielding technology. We also profiled Arion. It has attracted new investors for its corneal cell therapy. The Seattle company raised 120 million led by Deerfield last week to fund US and EU development of a therapy to restore vision in patients with corneal endothelial disorders. Last year, the company spun out of one of the world's largest corneal tissue providers for transplant procedures, CorneaGen Inc., to further develop the cell therapy. Now, CorneaGen had acquired worldwide rights to the therapy from Kyoto Prefecture University of Medicine, where Professor Shigeru Kinoshita and colleagues were first developing it. CEO of that company is Greg Kunst. 
All of this can be found on biocentury.com, plus many other stories that we ran last week. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.